It was a summer Sunday night in First Baptist Church of small town Alabama when the congregation listened in shock as Pastor John Smith stepped up to the pulpit and began reading his letter of resignation. No one saw it coming. Well, no one, that is, except for the deacons and a handful of others who had a part in impacting the decision that was announced that night. Although Pastor Smith had some faithful friends and followers at FBC, he had struggled to connect with many in that large church. And in the few years that he was there, there had been some folks who joined the church. The the church had grown in some ways, but it was obvious to many that attendance had slowly declined under his preaching and pastoral leadership. And as he was reading his letter of resignation, the tone of his voice indicated that this was not a decision that he had come to on his own. This was not something that he wanted to do. And in the moments that followed, the tone of the room went from tense to disorderly. As a handful of small but very vocal supporters began expressing their opinions angrily and out of turn. Following the service, literature was passed out that condemned the actions of those that impacted this decision as unbiblical and misguided. And everyone there that evening knew that the road ahead for First Baptist Church, the road ahead of direction and healing would take considerable time. But in time, that church would heal and see growth once again. As a teenager, I witnessed the events that I just described to you in my own home church. And chances are, if you've been around church very long, then you have also witnessed church fighting and quarreling, disorderly conduct in the life of the church. Church fighting is nothing new. It's been around since the very first churches. Why do... Christians fight with one another. Why does anyone fight with anyone else? And I think we, we see the answer to that question and the solution to that problem in our biblical passage for this morning. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4 as we continue our time together and this journey through this letter that James wrote about living faith, faith that is put into practice in day-to-day living. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Scripture reads this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Last week, we looked at the verses leading up to this chapter, the end of James chapter 3, and there we saw a description of true wisdom. We said that Wisdom is about much more than what we know. It is evidenced by what we do. We saw a description there of the wise, according to Scripture, and the unwise. And we said that the unwise are characterized by envy and selfish ambition. Products of pride. And that theme continues into chapter 4 of James, a passage that has pride all over it. The human pride is a problem. Pride is a human problem. Arrogance is a human problem. Pride or thinking more of or more about ourselves than we ought to is something that every single one of us struggles with. After all, this is what got Satan in trouble in the first place, thinking that he could be like God. This is what got Adam and Eve in trouble, thinking that they could be like God. But God's grace is greater than our pride. It's greater than our sin. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't judge sin. Of course it doesn't mean that. But His grace is sufficient to cover all sin. He has no shortage of grace. He doesn't run out of grace. Though we are prone to pride, God shows grace to the humble. Though we are prone to pride, God shows grace to the humble. We see that clearly in these 12 verses from James chapter 4, and it opens up the initial three verses. The first three verses began with a couple questions and then a response that has pride written all over it. Not literally, of course, but descriptive of the actions, the attitudes, the circumstances that James is addressing. It's clear that he's addressing churches, Christians, people in the church that are characterized by Pride. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he asked. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. In other words, you don't get your way and so you get upset about it. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We see here in verses 1 through 3 that evil desires produce discord. Evil desires produce discord. And just like we saw in chapter 1, verse 14, we cannot blame anyone else for our sin. We can't blame God or anyone else for the evil desires in us that lead to the sinful actions and attitudes from us. We can't blame God. That's the point of James chapter 1, verse 14. And here in James chapter 4, we see that we can't blame anyone else either. Sure, others are responsible when fighting and quarreling takes place, but, but we are also responsible because we too have this sickness, this infection, this disease in us called sin. We are sinners. We have evil desires, evil impulses, proud thoughts. We wrestle with day after day after day as as fallen human beings. This is so obvious when we think about children. I'm always alarmed when I hear people talk about how innocent children are. No matter how cute they are, how many hugs they give, how many funny things they say, whatever cute things they do, children are not innocent. None of us are innocent. We're fallen creatures that are guilty before a perfect and holy God. If you listen to my mother or my grandmother or my mother-in-law describe my daughter, then you would think there is no tendency towards to, to sin in her at all. That she is just so precious that she can never do anything, anything wrong. But if rather than just listening to them and taking their word for it, if you spent an entire day with her, then you would come to a different conclusion. Because selfishness would show up all over the place. And Don't think I'm picking on my own daughter. I love my daughter. Trust me. Your kids and grandkids are the same way. We are sinners. God, characterized by sin. And like the description here in James chapter 4, verse 3, sometimes even our religious acts such as prayer are much more about us and our desires and what we want than about the desires of God and what He desires to have in and through us. Even our prayers can be sinful. That's what James is saying in verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. In other words, your prayers are even full of pride. It's a popular contemporary Christian song out today that says there's a battle between good and evil. And it's raging inside of me. There's a struggle between God and the devil. It's love against the enemy. We are going to 
be more specific and expound on that psalm, we might say, yes, there is this battle between God and the devil, this, this battle between good and evil, but the outcome is rigged. This is not an equal battle. This is not an equal war. We know that, that God wins this battle, that He's the one that's sovereign, that He's the one in charge. But there is a struggle that's going on inside of us, all of us, if we know Christ. A struggle between the old way of life that's ruled by sin, falls victim to the temptations and desires of the flesh, and the new life that's led by the Spirit of God, the Spirit that takes up residence in us as believers. One of the most influential, if not the most influential follower of Jesus to ever live, described this inward struggle this way. Paul described it this way in Romans chapter 7. Beginning in verse 15, he wrote, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is, as it, is it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And we find the answer in the following verse. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who saves me, who rescues me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though we cannot overcome the temptation to sin, the impulse of sin, the lure of sin, tendency that all of us have to sin, the Spirit of God working in us as we respond to to Jesus Christ can and does. And because... There are evil desires in all of us that produce discord, fighting and quarreling and all sorts of other sin problems. Let's desire what is pleasing to God. Desire what is pleasing to God. Sure, we are are so susceptible to sin that we quickly fall back into a lifestyle that is not pleasing to God. And as long as we're on this earth, we will continue to struggle with sin and the temptations to sin. But if you've tasted the goodness and the grace of God displayed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you know He is good. He alone satisfies. The psalmist wrote, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. If you're struggling with sin today, if you're struggling with the old life that is ruled by sin, the life apart from Christ, then 
And take some time to be intentional about spending time with the Lord. Pause today. Pause this week and get alone with God. Ask Him to renew the desire in you to to do what's honoring to Him. Ask Him to influence the affections of your heart, to change the affections of your heart, and to draw you back to Him, to recognize that He alone is good, that He alone satisfies. Put down the iPhone for a few minutes. Put down the iPad. Forget the news, forget the sports games, forget whatever else is going on and get alone with God. Listen to God through His Word that He might give you and I a desire to do what is pleasing to Him. Though we are prone to pride, God shows grace to the humble. And that truth becomes abundantly clear in the next three verses of James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Look back at the text with me. Verse 4, you adulterous people. How would you like to be described that way as Christians, as the church, letter written to churches? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Passage moves here in these verses from a description or an analysis of the situation, fighting and quarreling going on, to an exhortation to live on the basis of who God is, to live in light of who God is. God has called His people To live in a covenant relationship with Him. To live as His people. It's like when a man and woman enter into marriage. They covenant to love each other for life. To be committed to each other for life. And over and over again in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, the people of God are portrayed and described as as the bride the bride of the Lord, even the wife of the Lord. I believe this is because there's no other human relationship that mirrors the love of God and the commitment of God to His people than the relationship between a husband and wife as God has designed it. By the way, this is why we as followers of Christ must be faithful to God's design for marriage, regardless of what culture says about marriage, regardless of what society says about marriage. Because as we are faithful to God's design for marriage, we are providing a tangible picture of the unconditional love of God for His people as displayed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. This is a big deal because as we are faithful to God's design We stand as a witness in the world, to the world, of the love of God as displayed through Jesus Christ to the world. But these people that James has addressed, churches, the believers, the 
James is addressing are, are not acting in a way that's consistent with what they profess to believe. Profess to be followers of Christ. They profess to be faithful members of God's church and yet they are acting on selfish ambition with envy, fighting, quarreling, evil desire, sin nature getting the best of them. Like a tree that oscillates in the wind. They are oscillating between faithful commitment to God and faithful commitment to the world. They can't make up their mind back and forth between God and the world. And this is a God who jealously longs for, for what is His. For what He deserves. Who demands total allegiance from His people. And for this reason, because they're not acting in a way that is faithful to Him, He calls them, you adulterers. Cheating on God. Unfaithfulness to God. Because they are flirting with the world and the ways of the world and the things of the world. God demands and desires total allegiance from His people. And despite our spiritual unfaithfulness, despite our spiritual adultery at at times, God is good. God is so good. Remember that song? God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. So repetitive. Yet so true. And one of the ways that He is so good is that God supplies grace to keep the humble spiritually faithful. God supplies grace to keep the humble spiritually faithful. That's what's going on here. That's especially the point of verse 6. In light of our unfaithfulness, in light of our drifting away from our commitment to the Lord, and flirting with the ways and thoughts and desires of the world, Verse 6, He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The standard that God requires of His people is high. It demands total allegiance, total faithfulness. Yet He gives the grace for us to stay true to the commitment to Him. In other words, He gives us what we need to be faithful to Him and our walk with Him. In the words of Augustine, God gives what He requires. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is not something that we earn. This is not something that we deserve. This is not something that we can live up to. It's totally the prerogative of God to save us by His grace. And it's also the way of God to keep us by His grace as well. So because this is true, because God supplies the grace to keep the humble spiritually faithful, let's wholeheartedly follow Christ. Wholeheartedly, completely, totally, wholeheartedly Follow after Christ. Because the temptation and lure of the old way of life that's ruled by sin is constantly thrown at us. 
We must pursue Christ. We must run after Christ. We must, in words of the writer to the Hebrews, throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. Entangles us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Christ, pursuing Christ, seeking Christ. And the good news for us is that even though we are at times spiritually unfaithful, even though we are at times spiritual adulterers before God, God forgives the unfaithful who practice repentance. God forgives the unfaithful who practice repentance. We see this clearly in verses 7 through 12. Look back at the text. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. We don't have time to go into a lot of detail about these verses, but the point is clear. God demands and requires repentance from His people. And He faithfully forgives us when we repent. This repentance is not, I'm sorry, that our moms and dads made a say to our brothers and sisters when we did something wrong against them. We didn't mean that any more than direct TV meant what they said in that letter that they sent me last week about me being chosen to win a new free Android. Repentance according to Scripture, according to this passage, according to all of Scripture, is a heartfelt change of behavior. A change of direction and desires. A change of attention, a turning away from sin, being ruled by sin and turning toward and embracing Jesus Christ. It is a 180 degree change of heart. It's something that recognizes who God is. Recognizes that He is Lord. Called to submit to Him, surrender our will to Him. Repentance turns away from the devil and the lure of the devil. It draws near to God, knowing that then God will draw near to us. It involves external action. Wash your hands, you sinners, and internal attitude. Purify your hearts. It expresses, as verse 9 makes clear. Deep sorrow over sin. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's a broken heart over failure to live up to the standard of God. Failure to live a life that is pleasing to God. That's the biblical picture of repentance. And Scripture promises that as we repent of our sin, as we repent and turn to the Lord, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, we will find Him like the father and the prodigal son with arms open wide, 
welcoming us once again and forgiving us for our sin. So because this is true, because God forgives the unfaithful who practice repentance, let's repent and return to the Lord. Repent and return to the Lord. Where have you strayed from the Lord? Where have you taken sin too casually before God? Maybe it is in your speech, in what you say, the way that you talk about others. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's in overtly following and submitting to, seeking the ways of the world over the ways of God. Maybe it's constantly listening to the mindset and the attitudes of the world rather than listening to the Lord. Maybe it's in secret sin that no one else knows about except the Lord who knows all things. Wherever it is, Repent and return to the Lord. When we are prone to pride, God shows grace to the humble. And we see in the final two verses of this passage a picture, once again, of human pride. So look with me quickly at verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who judges against, or anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. Let me try that again because I messed up there. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And once again, James confronts his listeners, confronts these believers, professing Christians, members in various churches. He confronts them for the way that they are using their tongue, for their loose speech, for their harmful speech. And that's the picture here. That's the description here. This speech that is characterized as harmful for any number of reasons. This is not necessarily one type of bad speech. And what's being communicated here, I believe, in verses 11 and 12 is that pride is revealed through evil speech and disobedience to God. Pride. That problem, once again, of thinking too highly of or too often about ourselves. Pride is revealed through evil speech and disobedience to God. After all, that's That's what we're doing when we belittle others. That's what we're doing when we put others down. We're in essence saying that I'm more important, that I'm wiser than you are. And not only that, but Scripture communicates here that when we do that, when we act in in a way that's inconsistent with what God requires, with how He requires us to treat one another, we are also acting as if we are more important, as if we are wiser than God Himself. Discounting what He requires of us. In other words, denying the very authority of the commands of God, of the requirements of God, which ultimately is denying the authority 
of God. What an act of pride. And we continually belittle others and pay no attention to the commands of the king. Rather than doing that, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's acknowledge the position of God and the worth of others. Let's acknowledge the position of God and the worth of others. Let's acknowledge that God is king, that he is maker, that he is Lord of lords, that he is the one who sits on the throne, that he is the everlasting God. And because that is who he is, we will faithfully follow him. And let's acknowledge the worth of others as men and women who are created in the image of this great and mighty God. And let's treat them with the love and the respect that God desires of us. Let's be thankful today that God, by His grace, treats all of us far, far better than we deserve. Though we are prone to pride, God shows grace to the humble. That is true for long-time believers in Jesus Christ. That is true for every believer gathered here today, every Christian. No matter how long you've walked with God, God continues to show you and I favor, grace, as we humble ourselves before Him. And that is also true for the person who's coming to Christ for the very first time. God shows grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we we thank You for Your grace that is so clearly communicated through Your Word. We thank you for your grace that is communicated through your story. The story of redeeming a people, a broken people. Through the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, Lord. But we thank you for your grace. Your grace that pardons and cleanses within. We thank you for your grace. Your grace that is greater than all our sin. Lord, Capture our minds, captivate our hearts by your grace and your goodness to us. Lord, help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to desire you, to recognize who you are and respond appropriately today and every day as we seek to be your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.